From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On this day in 1929, a colossal market crash ushered in the Great Depression. We listen back to the stories of Coloradans who were kids then, like Juanita Sparks, whose father was a lawyer and accepted produce as payment. One time, a farmer gave us a rabbit, and her name was Betty. And she was supposed to be for the dinner table, but we made a pet out of her. In Colorado, the Depression was compounded by the Dust Bowl. These clouds are probably, oh, 200 foot high. I mean, it looks like a wall of dirt. It is a wall of dirt. It wasn't nothing but wind and dirt. You put a real wet handkerchief and put it up over your nose so you wouldn't be inhaling that stuff. When you got caught in one of them, there's a few people died. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's the anniversary of Black Tuesday, October 29, 1929, when financial markets crashed and set off the Great Depression. In Colorado and across the West, that segued into the Dust Bowl, which pummeled farms and ranches and livelihoods for a decade. Uh, in 2009, realizing survivors of that era were getting up there in years, we hit the road to meet Coloradans who lived through both events. Interviews will air today on the anniversary of the market crash. And because of another milestone, 20 years of Colorado Matters, which has had us scouring the archives for some of our favorite interviews. And uh, Michelle Fulcher, these conversations, part of a series you produced called Growing Up in the Great Depression, certainly qualify as some of my favorites. Mine too, Ryan. So this is longtime colleague Michelle P. Fulcher. And before we listen to these conversations, what sparked the idea for these stories? You know, I've been hearing stories about the Great Depression for years, sometimes still hear them from my mother-in-law, who's 98. And what strikes me is how vivid these memories are. The folks we talked to were maybe 10, maybe 15 years old when this was happening. And you can kind of hear the crinkle sound when somebody tells you about taking the inside tin foil from a cigarette packet and making a Christmas ornament out of it, or using the page of a catalog as toilet paper. These were hard scrabble years, but I just recall how openly and honestly our guests talked about them. They were just so generous. And you remember Bob Colson? Oh, yes. He grew up on a farm in Araba on the Eastern Plains, about 100 miles from Denver, and the financial hardship he describes. And then he talks about the Dust Bowl and the dust storms that came up. It got so dark on some days. We had chickens, and they thought it was night, so they'd go into the chicken house and get up on the roost and go to bed in the middle of the, in the, middle of the day. And, you know, Bob was still so proud of Araba. 
that he put the town museum in an old farm building in front of his house. It's still there? Still there. Still there. That chicken anecdote is, wow, I seared into my memory. Not sure that's the right word to use for chicken. But what else stands out to you, Michelle? You know, the really lovely Jean Rutherford Duane, who grew up in Georgetown. Jean's dad lost his job in the crash, but then he got another job with the Civilian Conservation Corps. So they had more food and more money than a lot of their neighbors. I can remember that Mama would tell us, don't go outside eating something if you don't have enough to share. And if you did go outside eating an apple or an orange, some kid would say, dibs on the core, dibs on the peel. Mm. They were very hungry. Gene's dad, working with the CCC, which famously built Red Rocks, um, he only made it home a few times a year, but he wrote letters filled with adventure stories he made up. And Jean still had those letters she made a point of saying in his handwriting when we talked to her in 2009. The, the way these individual lives just illustrated the larger trends at the time. I mean, I remember Lyman Edgar in La Junta, Colorado, talking about those dust storms caused by homesteaders who plowed and farmed the soil so intensely they essentially ruined it. When Lyman grew up, he served on the Soil Conservation Science Board because he, he didn't want to see the same mistakes repeated. Yeah, and, you know, he was something of a local hero down in that area. I was Googling around and found out that the year of his 100th birthday, he was the Silver King of the Arkansas Valley Fair, and he died just before his 102nd birthday. I'm just so glad we could document these stories before they were lost to history. And so, Michelle, into these stories we shall go. Bob Colson first. Michelle and I hopped onto I-70 from Denver, set the cruise control, and went east to Araba, Colorado in Lincoln County. Bob's warmth was perceptible from the moment we met him. Ah, so true. Glad to see you. It's good to meet you. I want to start a little out of order here. I want to start with the worst day. The day of the farm sale, when your parents lost their property, what do you remember of that? Most of the people who left this area, their only alternative was to go to Denver and try to find work. So if we were going to move to Denver, that means that I would have to give up my dog, pal, and he was my friend, and so I hated to do that. And I had a twenty-two caliber rifle. And I had paid 25 cents for it. And it had to go with the goods when the farm sale took place. So it was the farm, it was the land, and it was everything in the everything. farm. Everything. My dad couldn't afford uh, mechanical equipment, so he farmed with horse-drawn equipment, old implements that were worn out, and he just couldn't make the payments to the bank anymore. So he went to the bank and just said, I'd like to relinquish it. I can't even make the interest payments, as he had previous years. But that particular year, so many farmers were going belly up, so to speak. They, they were not accepting interest payments. They wanted some principal, which my dad just couldn't do. So the only alternative was to have a farm sale, and that was kind of a sad day. By that time, the Depression had gone on really for almost a decade. And I understand that the first shoe to drop 
in Ereba was in 1928, and that was actually before the Wall Street crash. That's right. What happened? My grandfather had written a check to his son, which was my uncle, and the check was in the amount of $35. My uncle went to the bank to cash the check and found the doors locked with a notice on the door that the bank had closed. Within a few days, he received a notice in the mail, sort of like a receipt that said, bank reported closed. Which, and what, what bank was this? This was in this town, is, This obviously. is the Lincoln State Bank, and this was the bank established uh, by local people. It was a locally owned bank, and of course in those days they, none of the savings or deposits were insured. And your grandfather had money there. Did your parents? My great-grandmother, as you can see by this deposit slip that we still have here, she had over $1,000 in the bank at that time, and of course she lost that as well. My parents lost right at $700, which they had been hoping to uh, build a home with. I have to imagine lots of people in town had their money there. They did. What was the effect of that on Ereba? Of course, I was pretty young at the time, but the effect, we didn't seem to have any money. We never, we never went to a restaurant to eat out. The only cash flow we had was a, a few dollars a week from the cream that we separated from the cow's milk and sent to Denver to be made into butter, and we would receive a check for maybe $3.68 every week for that. And we would take our eggs, which... We didn't get any cash for, but we would barter those eggs at the local grocery store, and they would give us eight cents a dozen credit to buy flour and sugar and the things that we couldn't produce in our garden. The effect was the same for almost everybody. Everybody had a garden, and I don't ever remember being hungry because my mother would... uh, I can see her working in this large garden with a big bonnet on so the sun wouldn't give her freckles. She always was concerned about that. But she would work in that garden and produce enough uh, vegetables that she was able to can enough to carry us through the winter. On, on the question of finances and work, when the country really plummeted into the throes of the Depression, the government made work available. Correct. I mean, through the Works Progress Administration, right. the Civilian Conservation Corps. Right. Did your family do any of that? Well, uh, my dad didn't participate in either of those two that you mentioned, uh, Ryan, but he was offered a job for $5 a day if he would provide a team of horses and a device called a Fresno, which is a large scoop, much like a wheelbarrow with two handles on it. The horses would pull that Fresno, and he was one of dozens of farmers to help construct old U.S. Highway 24, fairly parallel to today's I-70. And that was government work. Oh, it was government work. He was tickled to death to have that job, as was everybody, because cash was a... That was really something to have some cash. Bob, in addition to the economic difficulty, there was difficulty with the land. It was a constant effort to gain anything from the, the land because of the drought Uh, Several years it was so dry that sometimes the wheat would not even sprout. Another reason was grasshoppers were very prevalent, 
and to help curb the uh, grasshopper population, the local county provided a um, grasshopper poison. I remember my dad explaining to me, we got into our 1928 Chevrolet, and he showed, he put it in low gear, and then he told me to hold my foot on the clutch, and I remember my foot shaking because it was hard to hold it down. He said, now wait, I'm going to go back in the trunk so I can throw the poison out, and when I say go ahead, just let your foot off slowly off the clutch and then drive around in a circle, and so I did that while he sat in the back reaching his hand in the burlap sack getting the poison and throwing it into the field. That was very graphic in my mind because it was the first time I'd ever driven an automobile. <laughs> Secondly, we had a... Uh, well, let me ask you something about the grasshoppers first. Sure. Do you remember them? Do you remember oh, seeing absolutely. a lot of... Oh, there were so many that they would fly and almost darken the sky at times. They were just so... Well, they were hungry and they needed to eat and here's a little bit of greenery and and here they came, and they just they would just wipe out a crop in, 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 in days. One of the other things, that maybe not the same year, we had an overpopulation of jackrabbits. Now, we see these cute little cottontails running around. That's one breed, but a jackrabbit is a big animal. We don't see many anymore. But they had very long ears and a black tail. And, uh, and here's another thing to compete for food with. That's it. And so the grasshoppers had their turn. Now it was the uh, rabbit that would devour the crops. So in order to uh, curb that population, uh, many of the farmers would, on a Sunday afternoon, they would get together and put a corner fencing up, sort of like chicken wire on two sides, and then gather around behind a uh, half mile away or so, with uh, clubs like baseball bats or something, and they drive these animals, these jackrabbits, into this uh, this corner. This isn't very nice to talk about, but when the jackrabbits tried to get away from being confined in this corner, they would try to dart out between the farmers, at which time they would just club them to death. Now, the reason for doing that was twofold, to get rid of the rabbits, but the county participated by offering a bounty of two cents for a pair of rabbit ears. Now, the ears had to be cut off of the dead carcass, and they had to be attached, or they wouldn't get their two cents. And so you can imagine farmers competing to get these ears to take them into the county and get paid in cash. Now, that sounds like a story, but I witnessed that, and it it stuck with me for all these years. I can imagine that it would. Let me ask you about the dust storms. Back in those days, the farmers were not quite knowledgeable enough to rotate their crops or to leave the topsoil dormant for a year so as to soak in the moisture or to strip crop or to leave it fallowed one year so that the next year it would produce more. So every year my dad would get out of his disc and his team of horses and he'd go over the same land over and over again and the wind would incessantly blow, especially in March, and that topsoil would just come across the land and it would be like the darkest cloud you ever saw. It got so dark on some days, we had chickens and they thought it was night, so they'd go into the chicken house and get up on the roost and go to bed in the middle of the day. Another time, the little school building right down the street 
the wind would make the uh, glass in the schoolhouse sing a little tune, like they would just hum because uh, the window panes would rattle. But the dust was so bad and the wind was so bad that it caused each of the school buses, of which there were four, back in those days they had a distributor with points in them, the wind and the dust would cause those points to weld together. The buses wouldn't start. So each of the farm kids were doled out to residents of the town to spend the night. And I definitely remember spending the night in a two-story home here in Araba. Um, my sister slept in one room and I slept in another. And the next morning, the, the, it was calm as could be. The sun was bright. and It was a beautiful day, just the opposite from the day before. But you just couldn't get home. Couldn't get home. Yeah. No. I, I can't help but hear these stories, Bob, and think... Why the heck did you stay? The thought never occurred to us because where would we go? What would we do? My father only had a fourth grade education. Uh, my mother had an eighth grade education. And we were sort of attached to the land. Where would we go? What would we do? You eventually had to answer that question when you lost the farm. Of right. Uh, then it was mandatory to go someplace. And like many others, went to the big city in, in Denver, and uh, my father uh, received a little over $700 from the farm sale and purchased a, a new 1937 Ford ton-and-a-half truck and had a coal bed put on the back and, and started soliciting customers from the neighborhood in which we lived. Back then, the, the houses were heated with coal, and they would be able to buy a ton of coal for $3.75. That was great because, again, he had cash flow. Our rent uh, at 1737 East 35th Avenue in Denver was $25 a month. And we had an indoor bathroom and a bathtub. And, gee, things were pretty good. Had you had indoor plumbing in Araba? No. No. Was the city foreign to you? Was it a playground? It just seems so different and sort of scary. Uh, and we're back in Araba. You came back. Absolutely. Why? I don't know. Uh, it just feels like home, and uh, it's just great to be here. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being with us. I've enjoyed it. Bob Colson in 2009 at his home in Araba, about 100 miles east of Denver. More than a decade later, we've had some trouble tracking him down. He'd be 96 now. The Araba Museum he started is indeed still around. Today is the day in 1929 when the Great Depression started. And this encore of our series Growing Up in the Great Depression continues after a break. With producer Michelle P. Fulcher, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is CPR News. On the 14th day of April of 1935, there struck the worst of dust storms that ever filled the sky. You could see that dust storm coming, the cloud looked death like black, and through our mighty nation it left a dreadful track. From Denver, Colorado, they said it blew so strong. They thought that they could hold out, but they didn't know how long.
there's still time to fill out your 2021 election ballot. And we have help to make the process as easy as possible. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director. The free voter's guide from CPR News and Denverite is online now. You'll learn about the statewide initiatives on this year's ballot, plus other useful information like how to register to vote. All of it in plain language. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. October 29, 1929, is a date that derailed people's lives. The Black Tuesday Wall Street crash and the start of the Great Depression, only to be compounded by the Dust Bowl. Today, we're resharing stories of Coloradans who grew up in the Depression from a series that first aired in 2009. Jean Rutherford Duane was raised in Georgetown in the mountains west of Denver. Life got hard for her family in the 1930s. Then a mixed blessing. Jean's father, Bill, found a job supervising workers in the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, in southern Colorado. It meant his loved ones back in Georgetown had food on the table. It also meant he was away for months at a time. But his family took comfort in unusual letters home and an occasional visit. Oh, yes, that's one of the, one of the best memories I have. I would just lay on the foot of my mother's bed and look out the window watching. It would be after dark and watch for him to come. And when the lights from his car drove into the yard, oh, then I'd jump from the bed and run in the kitchen and tell my brothers and our mother, Daddy's home. And then all five of us were trying to get the doorknob at the same time and get the door open. And when that happened, we'd almost knock him off his feet. (laughs) He'd have supper and we'd sit and watch Daddy eat, because that was very rare to see a man at our table eating. (laughs) How often did he make it home? Oh, only four or five times a year. Oh, my gosh. But he always got to come home for Christmas and Thanksgiving. What did your dad do before the Depression hit? Oh, before the Depression hit, he had teams of horses in a wagon. It was called a livery business. He hauled ore from the mines. He'd go to the depot in Georgetown and pick up things that came in on the train and deliver them to the merchants in Georgetown. When the Depression hit hard, he lost his business and his house. Tell me what you did for food. The boys learned how to fish. We had an uncle that lived in Georgetown that was not married, and he devoted his time to us. He taught the boys how to fish. Uh, He helped them build rabbit hutches so they could raise rabbits to butcher. We went berry picking all the time, made jam and jellies. And the hairpin curves going from Georgetown up to Silver Plume were very bad. And almost every summer, the peach trucks carrying peaches from the western slope to Denver, at least once during the summer, a peach truck would turn over. And everybody grabbed their baskets and ran up to the sides of the road and picked peaches. And (laughs) my mother canned those. But the grocery store owners were so good to us, to everybody, because everybody was poor. And you could get a soup bone from his scrap of of uh, meat where he had butchered, and he would give those away. But if there was a little meat on it, you might pay a dime for it. And we had a big vegetable garden, so our mother made wonderful and nutritious soup for us. So your father had lost um, his house. Where did your family move when that happened? Oh, they had to move to my grandparents' duplex on one side of it. I don't know what my family would have done if that 
hadn't been available to them. So in 1933, uh, your dad goes to work for the CCC. That's right. And what was the job that he had? He was hired by the Forest Service, actually, to be a foreman of the CCC boys. And what were they doing? In the southern part of Colorado, it was a lot of uh, planting trees, but there was a bug infestation. I gather he was paid better than the young men he was overseeing. Yes, uh, he was. The boys made $30 a month, but 25 of it had to go home to their families, and they could keep $5. But my father, I think that he was paid $150 a month. Now, you said that the young men had to send $25 home. Was that a a requirement, or that that is just what you did? Uh, The government just did that. Uh, And I would call that a stimulus package today. (laughs) (laughs) It got the economy going. Your dad wrote home a lot. Oh, yes, he would write letters two or three a week. Not only letters, he began to write stories, adventure stories of five kids out in the woods taking care of themselves, doing all kinds of things. And uh, we've kept those in his handwriting for 75 years. And the kids in these letters, are they based on, on you guys? Yes, they had the same names that we had, only he gave them a new name, a new last name, Hoopenhollers. Hoopenhollers? Yes. I was always the one that was cleaning the cabin for those boys. They were out trapping and fishing and discovering new things, meeting up with wild animals. I don't know if Daddy thought that girls shouldn't do that. you got to remember that's 75 years ago. I guess he thought I should be in there keeping the cabin clean. So would your mom read you these stories then? Oh, yes. They would come in the mail, and then we couldn't wait. She'd always read them to us at night. He always ended them with a cliffhanger so that we would be anxious to hear about the next one. (laughs) So were there other families near you in worse shape that you recall? Yes, there were some that were even on welfare, and they were worse off than we were. I can remember that Mama would tell us, don't go outside eating something if you don't have enough to share. And if you did go outside eating an apple or an orange... Some kid would say, dibs on the core, dibs on the peel. Mm. They were very hungry. Was your mom really careful to make things last? Oh, my goodness. We saved everything. As a matter of fact, there was no money for shampoo. And so Mama would take the little pieces of soap that would be left in the soap dish and put them in a jar with water until the soap dissolved. And that's, that's what we used for shampoo. When we were lucky enough to have oranges... They would be wrapped in orange paper, like a tissue paper. And we saved the wrapping paper off of the oranges, folded them, and put them in a little box on the tank of the toilet. So I guess you know what those were for. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a delicate way of describing it, Jean. Did I do it well? (laughs) Yes, you did. You did indeed. Hmm. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for sharing uh, the stories and the memories with us. Oh, thank you. Jean Rutherford Duane grew up in Georgetown. In 2009, she shared her reflections on life in the Great Depression, which began on this day in 1929. Jean has since passed away. I'm going where there's no depression To the lovely land that's free 
from care. I'll leave this world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven, I'm going there. The stock market crash, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl. October 1929 was the start of a long, hard time. Today, we're resharing the stories of Coloradans who grew up during that time, like Lyman Edgar. He was raised on his family's homestead near Rocky Ford in southeast Colorado. They prospered in the 1920s until the Depression hit. We spoke in 2009. He was still living on the family farm. I sat down with him at his daughter's kitchen table in neighboring La Junta. Well, I was born in 1914 on that little farm south of Rocky Ford in this little old 24 by 24 square house. Had you know, a few chickens and some pigs and calves or two and milk cow. We'd go once a time in the horse and buggy. And mother would take her eggs. She made butter, churned butter. Or if we had a pig or we butchered a pig or butchered a calf, we'd take a half a beef, and we'd trade that in on a grocery bill. And there was no money come in at all, hardly. So you, you had a buggy early on. Did you have a car early on? Didn't have a car until about 1920, I guess it was. Bought an old Chevrolet coupe. And then 1927 was a pretty good year. And Dad bought a Model T with a box on the back. A Model T? Yeah. So that's a picture of your life before the Depression. Uh, did the banks crash in Rocky Ford and La Junta? Yeah. This little old fella had $16 in the People's Home Bank at Rocky Ford. When I got to, when they got all settled up, I got a dollar and ninety cents. And your parents must have had money in the bank too. Oh, they had. He had lost all his money too. Do you remember it changing life right away? You just lived. That's all you done. You didn't do nothing. You didn't have to do. Didn't know no traveling. You got every bit out of anything you could get. When you got a hole in your sock, well, they sewed it up. Still wore it. You didn't throw nothing away. Even the monkey ward catalog, you used it. Well, that was your toilet paper. You have a photo in front of you of a dust storm coming through Pritchett, Colorado. Pritchett, Colorado. Not far from Rocky Ford. This is a picture of down Main Street in 1933. This photographer was out in the middle of the street and took this picture. And I'll bet you he never got back into building before it hit him. These clouds are probably, oh, 200 foot high. I mean, it looks like a wall of dirt. It is a wall of dirt. And it wasn't nothing but wind and dirt. You put a real wet a handkerchief and put it up over your nose so you wouldn't be inhaling that stuff when you got caught in one of them. There's a few people died. Inhaled too much of that dirt and dust. Did you understand why it was happening? Well, that dirt come from dry one over rain, and the people, homesteaders, that had to plow so much of their land up to be qualified, you had to plow at least five acres of it and raise a crop. When after you done that for three years, it belonged to you, and no rain or no moisture. There wasn't nothing to feed. What did you feed the cattle, if you could? I mean, they just a little old thing. They burnt all the cactus that had spines in them, and them cattle ate them. A lot of protein in them. 
but pretty much everybody sold their cattle to the government. Do you remember when things started to look up? In 36. 1936. 36, we had a good, pretty good spring of some rain, had a little grass that fall, stopped that dust from blowing. Tell you a little story about that. Okay. I said, church one morning, I said, Reverend, we got to make a change. Well, I said, I've been a pan and I've been a pan and no rain. I'm going to put you on COD. When it rains, I pay. <laughs> and everybody got the damnedest look on their face. And finally, I laughed and he laughed. In about two weeks of rain, I wanted to give him some money. Give a little money to the church. Yeah. Dug up a little extra. Why did your family stay? Well, that's all what I had. How would you go? What we know from history is that a lot of the homesteaders left. It was just too hard. Well, I imagine 90% of the people left. They'd be there today, and the next day they wouldn't be there. A lot of them went to California. They thought there's jobs out there. If they had money enough to go, you lost your neighbors just like leaving part of the family leaving. You worked together, and Saturday night you went to town together. That was your entertainment. Once in a while, they'd have a dance. We'd stay in town for a dance or something like that. These are folks you, you played with, you worked with. Did you pray? Every night. What would you pray for? Another good day. Lyman, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Lyman Edgar speaking with me in 2009 about his life in the Great Depression, an event that began 92 years ago. Lyman died in 2016 described in his obituary as a longtime agricultural and community leader and a dedicated family man. Our final stories after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's high elevation and dry climate make for good stargazing, unless you're near a city that glows with light pollution, making it hard to see any but the brightest stars and planets. To view the Milky Way and other celestial bodies, head to Fluorescent Fossil Beds or Dinosaur National Monument. These are among Colorado's International Dark Sky Parks. Joining designated International Dark Sky communities like Silvercliff, Ridgeway, Westcliff, all of them distinguished by the deepness of their starry nights. A dark night benefits more than astronomers. Most living things depend on the daily cycle of light and dark to govern periods of activity and rest. And in humans, darkness triggers the release of the hormone melatonin, which encourages bodily recuperation. And as David White says in his poem, Sweet Darkness, the night will give you a horizon further than you can see. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, reflections on a defining moment in so many lives in Colorado and across the country. On this date, in 1929, the Great Depression began. And in 2009, we spoke with five Coloradans who grew up in the age of the Dust Bowl and the crash of Wall Street. Juanita Sparks lived in Aurora, where her father was a lawyer. My father was an attorney in a small town, and people didn't have any money to pay for services if they needed them. We often uh, had to take produce for a pay. One time, a farmer gave us a rabbit, and her name was Betty. 
And she was supposed to be for the dinner table, but we made a pet out of her. Now, you mentioned he was a lawyer in a small town. People, of course, today don't think of Aurora as a small town. But it was then. It was less than 3,000 people. Yeah. We were all neighbors. We would never think of buying anything from someone in Denver, for instance, (laughs) simply because our neighbors had to live just like we did. You wanted to support your own community. We had, yeah. Especially when... Because we expected them to support us. Especially when times were tough. Yeah. Uh, My mother made all of our clothes. She even made my dad's shirts. She had an old treadle sewing machine. I always said she probably traveled halfway around the world peddling that thing. (laughs) I had a dress made out of a flower sack that uh, I suppose 100 pounds of flour came in. I have no idea where it originated, but I did have that dress. It was a pretty dress. It was white with little flowers in it. And I wasn't the only one that wore a flower sack dress. What about shoes? One pair of shoes a year. And uh, if they wore out, we took them to the shoemaker to be repaired. We didn't throw anything away. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you're still that way today? Kind of. Kind of? (laughs) Will you give me an example of that? I wouldn't throw away a plastic bag for anything. Yeah. I can show you. What about food? My mother made bread. She'd give me three cents to go get a cake of yeast. Now, bread, a loaf of bread, cost a nickel. But a cake of yeast cost three cents. So she'd put the cake of yeast in with flour and make enough bread for a week. Which would last a lot longer Which than... Which would last longer than the loaf of... The five-cent loaf of bread. Three cents today. The idea of carrying three pennies to the grocery store. You know, you might not even stop and pick up three pennies if they were on the ground. Possibly. But I have to think that must have felt like such a responsibility. Oh, it was, yeah. Did you ever get enough money to buy something for yourself? Uh, we usually got enough to buy school supplies a big chief tablet, and pencils, which was all we needed. Did your family talk about finances? Not especially. Yeah. Were you aware that they lost money um, in the market or from banks or things like that? No, I wasn't particularly aware of that. I did, though. We had a little savings program in our school. Yeah. I think I took a dime a week to school. And uh, the bank in Aurora closed when all of the banks closed, and it never reopened. So I lost probably about 3 to $5. I was heart sick because <laughs> it was a lot of money. $3 to a 10-year-old kid was a lot of money. Were there people around you that were in worse positions? Do you remember? Oh, yes. There were quite a few people that came from Kentucky and Oklahoma to look for employment. And they couldn't find it. I do remember we had hobos coming. And we were, I've always heard, we were marked. Marked meaning a symbol. Some kind of a symbol. I remember trying to find it and never could. But there was supposed to be some kind of a symbol. Maybe on a a fence post or something mm -hmm. that indicated this is a welcoming house. Uh Uh-huh. And so do you remember having dinner with these folks? No, they always, we'd feed them outside, uh-huh. like a sandwich or whatever. One time, we lived out on Colfax, close to Chambers Road. Mm-hmm. 
and a family came to the, our place, and they stayed several days. And we shared food with them, and we played with the children. You graduated from high school during the Depression. Yes. What high school? William Smith High School. William Smith. Mm -hmm. Do you remember whether, well, you, frankly, or your classmates were able to get jobs? Or was it about going into college? What what, what happened? Um, I was lucky enough to go to college, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of the boys joined the CCC camp. This is the Civilian Conservation Corps. You know, not much later, they were drafted and went into the Army. As you've described it, this wasn't a particularly dark time in your childhood. No, it wasn't. Or unhappy. But do you remember a point at which you sensed that um, financially things were getting better, people were more prosperous, whether it was you or the people around you? My father was an elected county judge. Now, how he ever paid for the election, I I don't know. Yeah, the campaign, right? (laughs) But uh, he was an elected county judge. So then he had a regular salary, which was the first time ever. However, the counties didn't have enough money to pay their people. So he took what was known as a registered warrant. It was like an IOU. Okay. And he sold it to someone. And, uh, of course, they took a percentage off the top. And the idea was that there was some kind of guarantee behind that piece of paper so that he, yes. could, he could sell it with some yes. confidence. Eventually, the they knew that the county would have enough money to pay the other people. But but your dad took a hit on his own salary. On his own salary, yeah. To be able to get the money up yeah. front. His, I think his salary was two seventy five a month. <laughs> Besides in radio interviews, do you talk much about the Depression? No. No? To kids, grandkids? No, they wouldn't believe me. (laughs) You think? My grandkids wouldn't believe me. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Juanita. It's been a pleasure. You're more than welcome. From 2009, Juanita Sparks, who grew up in Aurora during the Great Depression. Juanita passed away last year. One man recalled having her as a teacher in first and second grades. Quote, this lady was what teachers are all about. Philip Antonelli grew up in Silverton in southwestern Colorado. Antonelli's father worked in the coal mines, but when the Depression hit, he took every job he could find to help his family survive. My father worked in the mines as only as long as he had to, but he was a blacksmith first rate. He was a constructor. He was a concrete expert for laying uh, sidewalks and things like that. And... uh, During those bad times, he and my mother would make uh, hot tamales, and you've never eaten a hot tamale like that. And they'd sell tamales fast as they could make them. Originally, then, your your father had worked in mining. Some. And and did that take a a dive in the the Depression? Yeah, the biggest mine up there was the the Sunnyside Mine, and, and I think it went down in about 29 or... 30 
but they still had things going on in Seward, you know, mostly government buildings, schoolhouses, things like that. So he was always employed. I don't think we ever missed a meal. We didn't have any tuxedos, but uh, <laughs> we had clothes. You were born in 1924. Right. Um, so you were a child when the Depression hit. Were you aware of how bad times were financially? No. I knew that if you had a nickel in your pocket, you were pretty well off. Yeah. Can I interject how I got money? Sure, yeah. Well, the way I got money was that these various celebrations, they'd have a, a Labor Day celebration, and there'd be contests, one would be the pie-eating contest, and the sack race, and then the foot race. Then they'd have a greasy pole that whoever made it to the top won the pig. And whoever, the, whoever made it to the top of the greasy pole? Yeah. Okay. So I won my share of the uh, races and pie. And from that money, I would buy my winter clothing. I think I bought two pair of bib overhauls, a couple of pair of shoes, some underwear. Nothing fancy, just something to keep warm. And, and wear every day. Yeah. I'd have one pair of bib overhauls to wear while the other one was being washed. Tell me about one of the contests you won. Well, I won uh, pie races. Eating a pie as, as fast the as you can. The fastest one that could eat the pie. Haven't you ever seen those races? Well, I'm thinking, can you use your hands or not? You use your face a lot. Okay, know? and then you go at the pie. You go at the pie head first, and uh, you don't eat it all. You, you smear your face in there, see? You don't have to eat the whole pie. You just eat the, the ingredients. That greasy pole, that sounds hard. Yeah. Fortunately, my uncle uh, had a pair of climbing cleats. Ah. You had footwear <laughs> that was And he pushed up. me up there. Okay. Because you couldn't go to, on an aspen tree, you notice how slick that is? And how much would you bring home? Maybe uh, $10 altogether. It's a big deal. Oh, it was good. That's why I could buy two pair of pants, you know. Do you remember families that were really down and out? A lot of poor families. But it seemed like we were all in the same group. Now, one thing that was available to us was, I think it was every two weeks, we'd go to the courthouse, we'd get rations, and it it consists mainly of corned beef from Argentina, a couple of loaves of bread, and never miss a bottle of cod liver oil. Cod liver oil. Cure, a kind of cure-all. <laughs> kind of cure-all. And this was uh, rations supplied by the government? Either the government or the county, I don't know. Was it good food? Well, it was palatable. The, the, the beef was okay. You just had to get used to eating it, you know. But, you know, it was free. And well, Yeah, let's eat it. Did you get a lot of it? A lot of the food, or did you, do you remember having to be really careful well, about how much? Well, we'd get two big cans of the meat, a couple of loaves of bread. I don't think we, we grew our own lettuce, chickens we grew. So this is really to supplement some yeah, of the food at home. Yeah, and never any candy. Uh, I, were you hoping for candy? I bet you were. Well, I, everybody was. <laughs> <laughs> that was not part of the rations, though. It was not. How long did those go on? Do you remember? Well, it, uh, I think the, the, the real depression was from about 
This is the Civilian Conservation Corps, and, and your brother got work. Oh, yeah, they put all the good kids to work there. And uh, they had camps for them, and they had uh, construction programs. And that paid? That paid maybe, what, a dollar and a half a day or something like that, but it, it was a pay. Do you remember that he had to be away a lot? Well, he was away during his term in the CCC, but I, I think he was only in there a year. Then uh, some of the mines start working. He went back to Silverton and got a job. Do you remember him sharing the money that he earned at the CCC Not with your with family? Not with me, he didn't. Not with you? <laughs> well, he may have given my folks some money for yeah. food or something. You have kids? I have four kids and six grandchildren. And do you ever talk to them about that period, about the Depression? I can't recall they're asking anything about life during the Depression. Is it something that you talked about voluntarily? I mean, something that you brought well, up? A few things, like uh, Christmas, you know. that I said, you know, when I was growing up, we'd cut a tree and put it on a stand. We'd go out and pick up these empty cigarette uh, packages and take the tinfoil out. Like the shiny tinfoil? Yeah, and, uh, you know, make try to make... A, bow ties or some little thing and and I said we used to tie those on the branches on the end of the branches so the light had come in. So that the Christmas tree decorations were these cigarette liners. Yeah. And uh, lights were basically the outside. The outside reflecting back on. That's creative. Yeah and of course we did put some popcorn. It was easy to put popcorn. (laughs) String the tree with popcorn. But that's what I tell them just when they were complaining, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You ought to sing in with me. Well, Philip, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Philip Antonelli, speaking with me in 2009, along with other Coloradans who grew up in the Great Depression, which began 92 years ago today with the crash of Wall Street, followed by the Dust Bowl. Philip died in 2013, His obituary mentions one particularly proud moment when he was part of the 60th anniversary of D-Day and, quote, sat in close proximity to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Special thanks to producer Michelle P. Fulcher, Kelly Griffin, and David Fender, as well as production manager Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters in our 20th year from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.